Acts chapter 18 begins by saying, After these things, Paul departed from Athens, and he came to Corinth. After these things, we left Paul last week, finishing up in Athens, a number of believers, it doesn't seem like many, And it tells us then, after these things, Paul departed. So it's interesting, he's not driven out like he had been so many times just previous to that. He leaves himself. He's not driven out of that area of Athens. He departs and he goes his own way now to Corinth. If you're following with us, he's going from Athens here and he goes over to Corinth there. I'll get you guys. Ready? He is from Athens over to Corinth. Now, that's 50 miles. It doesn't look like much on there. But for a guy who's been beat up a bunch of times and suffering from illness and eye problems, that, that's something to be hoofing that on foot. And by the way, it's off uh, the main highway that the Romans had built. And it's extremely dangerous. The part of that journey is up on a cliff where it's it's only so many feet wide where there's a rock wall on one side of you and the other side falls down into the ocean and it was famous for robbers to be there and they would take someone's money and just throw them over and uh, Paul is making that journey alone it seems uh, no doubt feeling the Lord has led him that's a good feeling to have when you're making that journey But 50 miles, he's hobbling along to get to Corinth. Now, Paul had been familiar with cities, certainly Tarsus, Jerusalem, Damascus, I'm sure Caesarea, after he saved Antioch. Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens. But when he comes into Corinth, he only thought he was used to cities. What he encountered there was something like he had never experienced in his life. Coming from Athens to Corinth was like going from Cambridge or Oxford to Las Vegas. I mean, the change could not be more drastic. Uh, Corinth had been destroyed by a Roman general, Mimius, 146 B.C., because the city itself is almost a thousand years before Paul. It had gone through the Greeks, had gone through different things, but then as the, the Roman Republic is in power... They rebel against the Roman Republic. So Mimius, a Roman general, comes in and he basically levels the city and he burns everything. It's in ashes and and cinder. And it seems like in that fire, a number of alloys melted together. And when it gets rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 44 B.C., what he finds in some of the ruins is this ally bronze, brass, which becomes Corinthian bronze or Corinthian brass. Corinthian pillars is something that's famous. The, the, the capitals on top of the pillars are still reproduced today in certain parts of the world where they're making a, 
a beautiful pillar with a top on it. So Corinth was famous for art. It was famous for all of these things. If you look, you have the Adriatic Sea is over here, and the Aegean Sea is here. And particularly um, any of the later winter months or early spring, it was dangerous going around the bottom. So trade from all over the world would come in here or come in here, and there's an isthmus. There's three and a half miles of land between those. Oh, I'm sorry. There's three and a half miles of land. You have this side by Centuria here, and then this side coming in, and then there's three and a half mile strip of land there that one of the Caesars tried to make a canal. He failed. You're doing that with hammers and chisels, three and a half miles. That's no fun. Uh, early last century, actually, they did build a canal through there where ships can go through now. But what they did in Paul's day is if the ship was small enough, they unloaded the cargo and they drug the ship three and a half miles overland on logs and sometimes small enough on vehicles with wheels. And they would carry the cargo with, with burrow animals and so forth and get the cargo over and then sometimes put it on another ship. So it ends up to be, it's, it's the capital of Achaia. You can see underneath of there where Corinth is, is Achaia. And um, it is probably the most significant outside of Rome, the most significant trade center in that world. Persians and Egyptians and people from all over the known world came there to do their trade because of the isthmus and the ports on either side. Athens was in the area. They came from all over. So there were multiple gods, multiple temples, um, a temple to Apollo there that was famous. Um, remains of that are still there today. But up in Corinth, there's a mountain there, a hill, 1,800 foot above the rest of Corinth, which is down in a valley closer to sea level, called the Acrocorinthus, or Acrocorinth. And that houses this huge temple to Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the Greek, Venus was the Latin. This female goddess, who had, by the way, the title of being the goddess of the earth, that was part of her name. So in this temple to Aphrodite, we're told by early historians that there were a thousand temple prostitutes there. Those particular prostitutes in the temple of Aphrodite were normally purchased. They were bought on the slave market by wealthy individuals, and, and then they were donated, like they were getting, getting good with the God, to the temple. There were two other classes of prostitutes in Corinth. There was one, there was a specific, specific name given, and they kind of just worked with the higher class males that were there, the wealthy, and then there was the more common prostitute. But these 1,000 prostitutes that are up in this temple, they get paid by the civic government, a salary. And so they just pack, they just practice their, their, their fare to, to the known world. So Corinth gets this reputation of being immoral. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, you know. Uh, completely immoral. If you were called you a Corinthian, it was an insult. 
If you were Corinthianized, you, ha- you were completely immoral. Uh, a lot of people, the ancient historians, said a lot of them came to Corinth with money and left with syphilis. And there was no cure for it in that, in that world at that point in time. So it's this really remarkable place that Paul comes to. He does find a synagogue there. There's the Isthmus Games there, second only to the Olympics. Uh, remarkable. Population, they say, was at least 100,000, plus slaves, plus traders. So it's certainly a remarkable center. They're famous for drunkenness, immorality, all different languages, and gods are there. Uh, the interesting thing is when we look at this, we can see why Paul writes to this Corinthian church, the Corinthian letters, when he writes to Corinth, he has to deal with them about immorality. It was common there. He has to write to them about suing one another. We're going to see him drug into the court here. He says, don't go to the civil courts, settle it with the church. He has to deal with them about getting drunk at the communion table. That, that was, this is the life that these people were coming out of. He has to deal with them about the misuse of spiritual gifts because no, no doubt God left the gift of tongues take place there because there were so many different languages and there were those that spoke in tongues and people from different parts of the world heard God being praised in their language. But of course, because it was the Corinthians, they took everything out of context. They did it all wrong. So, but, but as you study Corinth, you start to realize some of the context of the letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians. And then while he's in Corinth, the first time, his second missionary journey, he writes First and Second Thessalonians. And there's so many remarkable things there as Timotheus and Silas will come and catch up to Paul in Corinth. And he, they bring news of the church in both Berea and Thessalonica. And uh, Paul then will write a letter to those, the, the church in Thess, First and Second Thessalonians, which are remarkable. He writes to them. So we have this incredible picture brought before us here. And it tells us that Paul, after these things in Athens, he departs of his own will from Athens, and he comes to Corinth. And it says, he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, which is a Roman colony by the Black Sea. He's born in Pontus. Pontius, it says here. Pontus is what it really was. Lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius, who was Caesar then, had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and he came unto them. Now look, Claudius didn't say all Jews had to leave Italy. What he said was all Jews had to leave the city of Rome because they were causing problems. He had enough. He was tired of it. So he commanded that all Jews had to leave the city of Rome. Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned six times in the New Testament. Four of those times, it's Priscilla and Aquila. She's mentioned first. She seems to be, 
um, spiritually more grounded in some ways, maybe stronger in the Hellenistic culture as they talk to uh, Apollos. Um, Her real name is Prisca. Priscilla is the long form of that. Prisca, though, speaks of the fact that she was born at some level of royalty and, and, you know, high social strata uh, in the culture, and her husband from Pontius, a Roman colony. So when we watch them, they travel from Rome to Corinth to Ephesus, back to Rome again. They seem free to travel all through the Roman world. So they're probably both, no doubt, Roman citizens. And the remarkable thing is they come to this city that's just bonkers. And they're there, and their trade is they're making tents. Uh, Great business in Corinth because the Isthmus Games were there in 51 A.D. And we know, in fact, this is Paul's there from 51 to the spring of 53 A.D., So while he's there, he ends up making tents with them. Everybody that came in from out of town was sleeping in tents. All of the the sailors, when when, when Paul booked a fare on a ship, everybody slept on the deck. Those were grain ships. They were cargo ships. They didn't have cruise lines. It wasn't Disney Cruise. You know, it wasn't. you, you, You paid money to sleep on the deck of a cargo ship, and many of them pitched tents, nailed them to the deck, when they did that, or you had to have some kind of cover, you would sleep in yourself. So because of all of the trade by sea there, great business to be in. The word tent maker here has the, the root of it in leather. No doubt Paul worked with leather. The famous tents from Cilicia, where Tarsus was, were black goat hair tents woven together. And supposedly they shed the rain Uh, Great tents. Paul, if he was working with leather, he wasn't on the side of slaughtering the animal like a tanner and tanning it, which was unclean. He was a tent maker by trade. So it tells us here that he meets these two Jews in Corinth. What are the chances of that? 20,000 Jews had left Rome because of Claudius. These two happened to go to a city where there's maybe 200,000 people there. Paul walks in town by himself, and does he ask around, hey, are there any tent shops around here? And somehow he meets Aquila and Priscilla that are both Jews and both believers. Tell me, what are the chances of that? You know, coincidence is not a kosher word. That's what they say. He runs into these two who then go with him to Ephesus, They travel with him. They end up back in Rome with them. Uh, Most scholars feel that they were both martyred, Aquila and Priscilla, in Rome. Paul, when he signs off um, in the book of 2 Timothy, his, his swan song, the very last thing he puts to the page with his quill Right at the end, verse 19 in chapter 4, he says, Salute Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. He's still communicating with them at the very end of his life, which means that they were with him over 15 years after they met him here. 
You just don't know whose store you're walking into. You don't know who you're banging into. You don't know what coincidence is going to be in your life. But these folks were knit together now in a remarkable journey as Paul runs into them. They had recently come from Rome because of Claudius. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought. For by their occupation, they were tent makers. Now, common in Israel, you taught, they said a Jewish father had three responsibilities. Circumcise his son, teach him the law, and teach him a trade. Gamaliel said, any father that doesn't teach his son a trade teaches him to be a thief. So this is esteemed. Anybody, a religious Jew from Israel, would have had a trade. Paul, remarkably, probably because he's from Tarsus, where these famous black goat hair tents are from, he's a tent maker. And it says that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks, the, the, those that had come over to Judaism, lovers of God, proselytes, the Greeks. And the interesting thing is here, look, he's, he's making tents. Timotheus and Silas are not there yet. He's, he's making tents. He's working. He tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, hey, look, when I was there, you know, I didn't, I wasn't, you know, a burden to any of you. I didn't cost you anything. I worked with my own hands, you know. And he, he talks about, we have this idea in the church of tent making. And uh, I think it's a lost art. I think there should be more tent makers amongst pastors, to tell you the truth. But uh, Paul is here, again, tent making, working. And on the Sabbath, he's in the synagogue, reasoning, talking. So all, all day long, he's holding down this, this job. He's working there remarkably. And, and he's making tents and reasoning with the Jews every Saturday and the Greeks in the synagogue. And when Silas and Timotheus, you probably like it better if we called him Timothy. When Silas and Timothy were come from Macedonia, now you guys, Macedonia is up here where Thessalonica is and Berea, they had stayed behind. See us there? Macedonia, this all becomes Greece. And ultimately, Corinth will become the capital of the entire area as time goes by. So it says, when they came to him from Macedonia, Paul, it says then, was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. Now, he's pressed in the spirit. We're not sure exactly what that means. I mean, we can all know as Christians, it was an unction. There was something pushing on. Some scholars say, well, it was at that time because Timothy and Silas come and they bring the offering from the church in Philippi, which Paul mentions in several places. This poor church in Philippi supported him through his ministry. So some say, well, because that offering got there, Paul then was able to step out of tent making and he was able then to give himself to the ministry. The word doesn't demand that, though. It just says when they come, and no doubt he hears, hey, the work 
We started in, in, in Philippi, where, where, where you were beat. that looked like it was coming to a dead end. The church is flourishing. In Thessalonica, where they chased you out of town so you wouldn't be killed. You see, the, the church there is flourishing. Paul's going to write and said, The word of God sounded out from you through all Achaia. And he said, You've turned from idols to worship the true and living God and away from his son for, for his son from heaven, who has saved us from the wrath to come. He, again, he tells us in the second chapter there, When we were there, you received the word of God from us as it was the word of God, which in fact it is, which effectually worketh in you. So when he writes to the Thessalonians, he said, the word of God, I've, I've, I've gotten word from Silas and from Timothy, the church is flourishing under difficult circumstances. And I, and I pray that the church is flourishing in Ukraine under difficult circumstances. And in Poland, among the refugees, and Hungary, and Romania, you know, again, we, 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 we look at these things, and we need to remember the world we live in is Corinth. The whole world's Corinth now. And behind what we're seeing in the news and all, there's principalities and powers. Again, I believe Gog... Behind Putin, there's a, there's a principality and power. There's a, there's a prince of darkness, like the prince of Greece and the prince of, of uh, Persia in Daniel chapter 10. There, Michael's called your prince to the people of Israel, Michael the archangel. And it says when Israel comes back into the land, the valley of dry bones, they come back to life again, that then there is a prince behind Russia, your Bible probably says the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, Ezekiel 38. Chief there is not an adjective. It's a proper noun. It should be the prince of Rush, which is what the Jews say, R-O-S-H, call Russia. Rosh Hashanah is the head of the year, so that's why they translate it chief prince. But it's the prince of Rush there. And then the last days, and it says it's Gog of the land of, of Magog, whatever it's a must be an ugly critter with that kind of a name. But, but the, there's going to be forces moving in the last days relative to principalities and powers. And I'm certain that was happening in Corinth with all the depraved lifestyles and so forth. And we, you and I can get frustrated with the world that's around us. And we forget that God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. And it, and it tells us here that he, he's going into the synagogue and now he's pressed by the Spirit. Jeremiah said, your word, it, it, I tried to, to restrain myself, but it came like a fire in my bones. I couldn't contain it. Paul is pressed in the Spirit. And he testified to the Jews that, in fact, Jesus was Christ. He was the Messiah. And it tells us when they opposed themselves... And blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean from henceforth. I will go to the Gentiles. Now, I think opposing them themselves isn't the thing that drove them over the edge. It says they begin to blaspheme the name of Jesus. And I think at that point, you know, Paul said, that's it. When he writes... To Timothy again in Second Timothy, uh, 
he says there, the servant of the, of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves, if perhaps God will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. So here he says they're opposing themselves. They're not even, not even realizing it, I'm sure, in the context. But Paul says they're opposing themselves, and they begin to blaspheme. So he shook off his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go to the Gentiles. So um, he shook off his raiment. We know from the Gospels, Jesus told his disciples, When you go out, send out the twelve, send out the seventy. If they don't receive you in a village, in a town, then shake the dust of your sandals off against them when you depart. It was something the Jews understood because when the Jews traveled into Lebanon or over into Edom or any of the Gentile territories, when they got to the border of Israel, they would shake the dust of their feet off because they don't want to bring contaminated dust back into Israel from Gentile territory. And the Jews understood that was a testimony against somebody when you did that. So when you were outside, you shook the dust off your sandals. When you were inside dealing with the people, you shook out your raiment. And it had the same message. And Paul says, now your blood is upon your own head. Now they understood, these Jews, what he was saying. And it's from Ezekiel chapter 3. And there... The Lord, of course, says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, I'm sending you these people. If you don't go and you don't preach to them, then their blood is going to be on your head. If you go and do what I tell you to do, then their blood's going to be on their own head. And a lot of places in the church, they take that legalistically and they put on you and I this burden and say to us, if we don't preach, that the people we don't preach to, their blood, if they end up lost, is going to be on our heads. That's a wonderful, encouraging idea, isn't it? No, here's our context. Ezekiel's by the river Chebar. And he's there, and he sees the chariot of God and the cherubim descend from heaven. He describes this scene, which he can't even speak of, And he says, as that takes place, the Lord comes down and picks him up by the hair and carries him to Jerusalem and puts him down and says, you need to speak to these people. If you don't, their blood will be upon your head. So I would say to you, if you're ever sitting by the river Chebar and the cherubims of God and the chariot of fiery chariot of God comes down and God picks you up by the hair and carries you to another country and says, if you don't preach to them, their blood's going to be on your head. I would preach to them if that happens. But it isn't something you take and condemn the church with. That wasn't the context. Paul knew what he was saying when he said it because he had come to them as Ezekiel had come And he spoke the word to them. They're opposing themselves. They're blaspheming the name of Jesus. So he shakes out his raiment, says, your blood's going to be on your own heads. He says, I'm clean of it. And from henceforth, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Now, this is great. It says, and he departed thence. He entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshiped God, whose house was joined hard to the synagogue. What it says in the Greek is his house had an adjoining wall with the synagogue. 
So Paul's next store in the synagogue, arguing with them, and he said, finally, that's all I can stand. I can't stand no more, you know. I'm done. And he said, I'm going to the Gentiles from now on. See ya. And he goes next door. <laughs> and I'm sure that they weren't happy about that in the synagogue. We'll see it as it moves forward. So he goes into this guy's house. It says here, Justice. Uh, historians tell us this is Gaius Titus Justice. We have his name in, uh, in archaeology and so forth, known. One that worshipped God, it seems he was a proselyte of the gate, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. So it's an adjoining wall. So they start meeting there, right next to the synagogue. And I'm sure as they're going in and out, they're giving each other dirty looks, right? No, nobody's happy about this. And verse 8 says, And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says this in Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. And he mentions Sosthenes, who we're going to run to his brother. Verse 14, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest that I should say I had baptized in my own name, and I baptized also the house of Stephanos. So he mentions Crispus when he writes to the Corinthians, and he said, I'm so thankful I didn't baptize any of you but Crispus and Gaius, because the Corinthian church was not dividing. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Look, people, again, in the church today may teach that baptism saves. And if you ain't baptized, you ain't saved. Well, the most zealous evangelist that ever lived, said, I thank God I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius and some from the household of Stephanos. If baptism saved, Paul would never, ever have said that. Baptism's a time for you and I to stand publicly and enter in going under the water to the death and then coming up in newness of life, entering into the death and resurrection of Christ. We're stating it public. There wasn't Billy Graham. There were no altar calls in the early church. The altar call was when you went and you were baptized. John the Baptist started with that because the Jews understood ablations, cleansing. They didn't understand someone saying needing to repent and dragging you down the muddy Jordan River and bringing you up. And Jesus, of course, moves forward with that. And Christian baptism is for the believer, not for the baby. It's not christening. Because it says we need to repent and be baptized. It's entering into the death and resurrection of Christ. So Paul has this relationship with Crispus. And evidently while he's there, him and his household get saved. And then Paul takes him, there's plenty of water in that area, and he baptizes him. We know that from 1 Corinthians and you can imagine then the Jews going in and out of the synagogue next door, seeing Crispus, the old head of the synagogue, going into the church next door. This, this was a tense situation. We can, we're going to tell by the next verse. And this is usually, in Paul's experience in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Berea, this is the time for hostility. This is the time for him to get beat or stoned or driven out of town or something. 
And it says this remarkably in verse 9. Then spake the Lord to Paul. In the night, by a vision, not a dream, vision, he said, Be not afraid, but speak, hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And then Luke tells us he continued there a year and six months, 18 months. Is that after the vision? Is it? including the vision. The point is, that's the longest he had stayed anywhere. For 18 months, teaching the word of God among them. So this remarkable thing, for some reason at this point in time, Paul's afraid. This is a a present negative imperative. So it says, Paul, you must stop being afraid. He had already started. Is he afraid he's going to get beat? Is he afraid if he sticks around the church and get persecuted? We don't know, but he's afraid. This is a great apostle. I'm encouraged by that. But sometimes I'm afraid. The Lord spake to Paul by night in a vision and said, You must stop being afraid, but rather... Again, it's an imperative, and it's present tense, it's durative. You must go on continually speaking, and don't begin the, the, to hold your peace. Don't, don't, and it's heritage. Don't begin to shut, don't let there be an historical fact that you stopped speaking. Because Paul might be thinking at this point, hey, in some of the, the towns I've been before this, I kind of had to be a little reserved at this point. They wanted to kill me. And the Lord said, no, no. Look, stop being afraid. And I don't want you to be silent. I don't want you to stop speaking. I want you to go and talk out loud. I want you to speak. And how many of us at times, I think, get in a situation we're afraid. It seems like all of the borders are closing in. It, 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 we don't see the light of God's presence or the pathway of his design. And how often does he have to come to us? You know, I'll, I'll, I'll be reading, you know, the checkbook of faith in the morning, my favorite little thing Spurgeon did. And uh, so many times it just speaks out loud. And I'm amazed at the times it says, fear not. God, you know, when his presence is there, he, he says to Abraham, fear not, for I'm with you. He talks to him about Eliezer. He tells Isaac, like, eight chapters later, Fear not when he talks to him. He tells Jacob, fear not when he speaks to him. He'll tell you the same thing he says to Moses. Same thing he says to Daniel in chapter 10, fear not. Same thing he says to John on the Isle of Patmos, fear not. The same thing he says to Peter when they hauled in the draught of fishes in Chapter 5 of Luke, and Peter says, I'm a sinful man, get away from me. And the Lord says, fear not, I'm going to make you fisher of men. Zechariah and Elizabeth in the temple, you know, and, and the angels are moving. And finally it tells us, you're going through that first chapter, that Gabriel comes to Mary and says, fear thou not. So heaven, it always seems heaven's first word isn't clear. You know, to bring somebody back. Heaven's first word is always, fear not. Fear not. 
You know, I'm convinced. I've been with a number of people and watched them take their last breath. You know, and the Lord told us about heaven. He said, let not your heart be troubled. Don't let it happen. Your heart. Right? It says in chapter 11, the tomb of Lazarus. People are weeping. It says he sighed. His heart was troubled. The next chapter, he talks about a grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying to bring forth life. He said his heart was troubled. The next chapter, 13, when Judas is about to betray him, it says his heart was troubled, Jesus. So it almost seems unfair that he says to us, let not your heart be troubled, where all three chapters before that, his heart was troubled. But what he says there is, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If that were not so, I'd have told you. I'd never let you have a, a fake or wrong belief about heaven. In my Father's house are many mansions. If that were not so, I'd have told you. And he said, lo, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you. Certainly the rapture and the final analysis. But that's the heart of God. I will come again and receive you to myself. I'm not sending for you. I will come and receive you. And I'm convinced for every one of us, look, we get to that place someday. If it's not by an accident or something else, you're in hospice. And you know you're getting ready to take your last breath. And that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where everything we believed all of a sudden, Lord, what's on the other side of this last breath? And I don't believe when you take that last breath, he lets us fall into the darkness like, ah, and then he catches us. <laughs> I think he comes. And that's the greatest spiritual experience we will have had to that point. And I think he says, fear not. Fear not. I've seen people open their eyes and say Jesus and lay down and go, Phew. One of my uncles said he was hearing the music as he was going. Those are all good things. By the way, if you want to see the light or hear the music or see Jesus, make sure you're saved. You don't want to see what's on the other side if you ain't. So if you, before you leave here tonight, maybe talk to somebody. Somebody brought you, pray with them, ask Christ into your heart. But remarkably, the Lord has to say to Paul, the great apostle, stop being afraid. Speak. You need to be speaking and not holding your peace. And then he says, here's the reason. For I am with you, and it's emphatic there. I, I for myself, the Lord is, he's trying to make that point. You know, it's not, you know, Samson, it's not King David. I, I, I for myself, I am with you, he says. So no man, not even one, the emphasis, shall set on thee uh, to hurt thee. The reason for I have much people in this city. It didn't seem like he had a lot of people in Athens. It didn't seem like, I don't know how many they were getting in Jerusalem, but here, this city, profligate, immoral, prostitutes, drugs, whatever you can imagine is going on. And, and he says to Paul, don't be afraid. Don't, you're not clearing out of town now. I want you to keep speaking. Nobody's going to mess you, with you because I'm involved in this. 
And Paul, I have much people in this city. It's in front of us. Homicide rate last year in Philadelphia, over 700. Fentanyl, again, leading cause of death in America, 15 to 49 years old. Fentanyl, not COVID, fentanyl. Leading cause of death on earth last year, abortion, 42 million. God's heart, Paul, stay here. Share my love. I have much people in this city. It's the verse the Lord spoke to me when Kathy and I moved back here in 1981. I had been born and raised in Philly, moved to the West Coast, came back, and wanted to see what Buddy's doing down in Kensington, Mark's doing in North Philly. Just wanted to see the, the city. And I felt like the Lord said to me, you, you just teach. I have much people in this city. And how remarkable some of the things we've seen. But Paul here, isn't that amazing? In Corinth. Stay here, because a lot of those rascals are mine. And I'm going to gather them in. I have much people in this city. And he continued there then. Continue means to take the seat. He sat down as a teacher, six months, teaching the word of God among them. And when Gallio, who was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul, and they brought him to the judgment seat. So remarkably here, we have Gallio. You know, quote-unquote scholars and historians picked on the Bible and said, Luke, just, there were no, what's he talking about? No pro-counsel. Until in Delphi, they found this. Now, I'll read it to you because I don't understand it, so I'll read it to you so you can be confused with me. But this is, this is the inscription they found carved on a stone in Delphi, which is not far from here. It says, Tiberius, Claudius Caesar, Augustus, Ceramicus, Pontifex Maximus, in his tribunican power, year 12, acclaimed emperor for the 26th time, father of the country, console for the, counsel for the fifth time, censor, sends greetings to the city of Delphi. I for um, I have for long been zealous of the city of Delphi and favored it to be uh, it's, it from its beginning and I have always observed the cult of Python that was the the girl who was possessed with the demon of Python and Apollo but with regard to the present stories and those quarrels of the citizens which a report has been made by Lucius Junius Gallio, my friend and proconsul of Achaia. So what happens is they find this inscription, and, and he tells us what year he tells us, and it, and it adds the time signature to the book of Acts. We know from this that Paul arrives there in, in the spring of 51, or the fall of 51, stays through 52 and leaves in the spring of 53. In fact, the more they work it out, they believe he left on March 10th, 53 A.D. It's that exact. Some tried to say it was on the 5th of March, but the scholars say, no, no, it came out this way. And the sea lanes didn't open until the 10th of March as well. So... The archaeologist, again, proves all the critics wrong, and we actually have exact dates. We know that the Isthmus Games were in 51. That's when he comes in to be, be the procurator there. Um, 
He, and it was came in at 51, spring of 52, he becomes a pro-council. Normally that lasted a year, at tops two years. And uh, this is the time that Paul is there, which helped we, then scholars back up. They go forward, they set the timetable for the book of Acts in a remarkable way here. So you can say thanks to Gallio if you meet him. And when Gallio was deputy of Achaia, you see that's the big piece of land underneath of Corinth on the map. The Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul, and they brought him to the judgment seat. Now, they've uncovered that seat in Corinth. It is white and blue marble. It's beautiful, and it's called the Bema seat. Very interesting, of course, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, in 2 Corinthians, we must all stand or appear before the Bema seat of Christ. And everyone um, may receive, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according as he has done, whether good or bad. When he writes to Rome, and he writes to the Romans um, on his third missionary journey, again from Corinth, um, and he says there, let me find it. My computer notes here. I think it's Romans 10. Ah, I can't find it. Anyhow, in Romans, again, he goes over the Bema seat. They understood it too. The Bema seat is a seat of rewards. At the It was a judgment seat in civic affairs. But it was also the seat with the Isthmian Games, the Olympic Games, where the athletes would receive their rewards. In the Bible, Paul calls it the judgment seat of Christ. It's, this, it's the beam of throne. You and I will stand there. I encourage you guys, go on the app, and there's a section here called New and Noteworthy. And Pastor Mike did a whole deal on the beam of seat. It is incredible. I just said, you need to put it on there. Everybody needs to listen to it. It's wonderful. But... The Bema seat is where you and I will receive our rewards, the things done in the flesh. You know, some of us, it says, our works are going to be burned up like wood, hay, stubble. Some of us, our works are going to endure the fire, like gold, silver, precious stones. It says some of us are getting in with our, the seat of our pants smoking, but the soul itself will be saved. So it's at the Bema seat. We will stand there. We won't be condemned there. We'll be rewarded there. The throne of condemnation is the great white throne in Revelation 20, and everybody who appears there is damned. The judgment seat of Christ is not a a judgment seat of damnation. It's a seat of reward. And Gallio comes in here, and we've uncovered this throne that he sat on. You can see it today if you go to Corinth. and And he sits down on the judgment seat there. Saying, and they say to him, This fellow persuaded men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, Roman law was the accuser got to speak and then the accused got to speak. Roman law was very strict and remarkable. And some of our laws today trickle down from there. Um, They say he's teaching this thing and it's contrary to the law. And then, now it's Paul's turn to speak, and it says, When Paul was now about to open his mouth, and he's not used to getting, not getting used, he's not used to not being able, 
It says, he was about to open his mouth, and Gallio said unto the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, crime or something, O ye Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. But if this is a question of words and names and of your law, look you to it. I will not be judge in such a matter. So he sta- now he's just come from Rome, Gallio, in 51. Then he, he ascends the throne there in 52 to be this proconsul. And he, he's come from Cla- Claudius. He, Gallio knows the people. His brother is Seneca, the famous orator and philosopher. He grew up in Spain. He understands the Roman world. And Claudius, no doubt, was a friend. Claudius had driven the Jews out of Rome, out of the city of Rome, verse 2. And now he says, you're not going to do this here. I've had my full of this. If this is a matter about your law, it's words, it's names, Jesus, Christos, all that, that's your deal. That's not my deal. If this was about, you know, a murder or some type of civic crime, I would make judgment on it. But I'm not going to do this. You're not going to drag me into this. You caused enough problems in Rome. It's not going to happen here. I just became pro-council. None of this is going to happen here. I'm not going to let it. We can tell he's got an attitude. <clears throat> if it's a question of words and names of your law, you look to it. I will not be part of such a matter. And he drave them from the judgment seat. It's relative to the word lictors were again where they the lictors would carry 13 rods around an axe the axe would stick out the top 13 rods where they were tied around it you, you see it on the again the Lincoln Memorial you see it in the Capitol building you see it in so many places around the world it was a symbol of authority well the lictors then would take the rods off the side of their the, what they're carrying and it says they started to beat the Jews he he drave them from the judgment seat he beat them out, told them to get out. Then all of the Greeks took Sosthenes, who's the head of the synagogue, now that Crispus left, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him before the judgment seat. And Gallio cared none for any of these things. He didn't care. They're beating him. I told him to leave. They got beat. It's their fault. He shouldn't have stuck around. So Sosthenes is going to take a whoop in there. Paul understands that completely. And uh, again, as he writes 1 Corinthians, the very first verse, he says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. So back in Corinth, this Sosthenes got the sense beat into him here, evidently. And uh, you you wonder if the Christians got around him like the jailer in Philippi and bound up his wounds and ministered to him. But, you know, some try to say, well, Sosthenes was a common name. Well, why would the Holy Spirit give it to us in the book of Acts in Corinth and give it to us in the letter of Corinth and try to fool us? These are two different guys. Uh, ridiculous. It, it says, then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him before the judgment seat, and Gallio cared for none of those things. Verse 18, where we'll pick up next week if the Lord tarries. Verse 18 to verse 23, it covers 1,500 miles. Uh, Remarkable. Um, We're going to see. 
This is a preview. Uh, Paul's going to go from uh, Corinth, and Caesarea is there. We read about that in Romans 16.1, where Phoebe carries the, uh, the letter to the Romans. Um, he goes from there, catches a ship, and he goes over to Ephesus. And it seems like Aquila and Priscilla stay there. And then he travels down to Caesarea, and from Caesarea to Jerusalem, and then from Jerusalem back up to Antioch, where he started. You ready? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Just, uh, he, he goes next week. He's going to go. There's Corinth. There's Centuria, where the port is. He, he takes a boat over to Ephesus. And uh, that's where Priscilla and Aquila stay. And then he will go from Ephesus down to Caesarea, the Roman port on the sea, then down to Jerusalem, and then up to Antioch, where he started uh, the whole thing. So it just tells us, And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while in Corinth, and then took his leave, he wasn't driven out, of the brethren, and he sailed from there into Syria, that's the Syrian area there, Ephesus is part of that, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. It says, having shorn his head in Centuria, for he had a vow that he was going to keep. We know he's going to go to Jerusalem. He wants to get there for the feast. I can't imagine he had an easy head to shave. It was full of lumps and scars and knots and, you know, uh, and you didn't have, you know, you didn't have an electric razor. You didn't have, uh, you know, Gillette. Uh, you shaved your head with a knife then. And uh, so he must have had a lot of Band-Aids as well, you know. Yeah, you can imagine this guy, what a sight he must have been after he shaved his head with a knife. Uh, maybe that's why you didn't stay long in Ephesus uh, this time. We don't know. But just this incredible picture. Look, um, in, in the worst circumstances, remember the Lord says, I have much people in this city. I have much people in this city. I mean, you, you look at our staff, drug addicts, alcoholics, you know, just, you know, just you, you think what the Lord's done. You, you look at Buddy, you know, a couple of years in prison. You look at, you just look at what God's done and how he redeems and how he puts people's feet on the rock. And then those people are the people then that can talk to the people like them because they've been there. They've done that. Great picture here. Great picture here. Be not afraid. Don't be afraid. Speak up. If I give you that unction, yeah, you might be speaking against the multitude. You don't have to be afraid because I am with you. When you know he's with you, that's a pretty remarkable thing than to do that. Great lessons as we go through. Read ahead. We'll go to Ephesus and we'll go to Caesarea and we'll end up back at Antioch as uh, we head into chapter 19. Some great stuff there. So let's stand together. Let's pray. You can thank the archaeologists for shoring up our study. If you're here tonight and you don't know Christ, look, get up here afterwards. We're here. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you, give you a Bible. It's not about Calvary Chapel. It's about Jesus Christ. He's the one who's risen from the dead. He's the one that told Paul, don't be afraid. 
It's a living relationship with a risen Christ. It ain't church. It's not a denomination. If you don't know him, it doesn't matter what your resume is like, what sins you've committed. He paid for all that on the cross. And if you're ready to jettison that and get out from all under all the weight of it, he says he'll give your soul rest. If you don't know him before you leave tonight, come on up. We'd love to pray with you. Give you give you a Bible. We don't want your email or your phone number. We're not going to give you offering envelopes or nothing. We just want to see you come into the kingdom. Father, I know you've overheard. We set our hearts before you. And Lord, this journey that these men were on, traveling overland, traveling by sea, Lord, just just we think of what Paul would have accomplished if he could have got on an LL jet. Lord, the, the, the twenty eight hundred miles on this second journey and the difficulties and the ravages and the cold, the things he writes about. Shipwrecks and beatings, being stoned. And Lord, we ask that uh, you would be with us, Lord. If the days grow more difficult here, we know the church in the Ukraine will be praying for us as we're praying for them. Lord, it just seems like things are unraveling. The edges are all frayed. And, and we feel like we understand where we are in rel- relation to all of that. You told us about these days. So, Lord, as we have privilege to study your word, let, let's do it, let us do it better, Lord. Let us do it more seriously. Let us always want to take away something that we can weave into our lifestyle in obedience to you, Lord. As we sing your praise, Lord, let us do it. Let us clear our minds faster of the weak and of stuff around us. And let us, Lord, in a deeper way, lift our hearts and our voices to you, Lord. And as we fellowship with one another, Lord, let us appreciate the family of God in a new way, Lord. And as we look out across this insane city that we live in, let us remember that you have much people here, Lord. There are many, Lord. They're going to stand in eternity, Lord. Make us contagious, Lord. Let us spread the good news of Jesus, Lord, across the Delaware Valley. We believe that these things, Lord, as we lift them to you, we're praying according to your will. We believe it's your will in all of those things we've requested. And so, Lord, we trust you then to be faithful in these things. You've encouraged our hearts to come and to ask, not to frustrate us, but to receive. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.